Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Categorically Romance podcast. My name is Sarah. And I'm Bree. And joining us today, we have a special guest, the one and only Heidi Rice. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Can you share with us how 2021 is going for you and how you've been taking care of yourself this year? Um, oh, hi. It's great to be here, by the way. Um, 2021's been better than 2020. I can say <laughs> that categorically. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm, it's good. I mean, I think obviously last year was a bit of a write-off, but actually I'd got quite a lot of work done once I'd kind of got over the panic of um, a global pandemic. Um, and this year's been better in the sense that um, we've, I've been able to see a bit more of my family and stuff. I mean, I think the thing that was really hard last year, I've got a big family and um, they live all over the globe. And so it was just really hard not to see them face to face. And although we're still not seeing the ones in Australia face to face because they seem mm-hmm. to be in lockdown forever. Um, <laughs> It's, uh, you know, I have seen my, I've got a younger sister that lives in France. And so that's been great. So, yeah, that's my kind of go to when I need um, pastoral care, as it were. Let's get into some icebreaker questions. If you came with a warning label, what would it say? Okay, so I thought about this and there's quite a lot of warning labels. (laughs) (laughs) Probably the one that's most important to me is do not disturb while daydreaming because I find, I mean, I used to find when my kids were little, they'd often say to me, mom, you're not listening. But, you know, I, I find that I tend to daydream a lot about stuff and um, it really annoys me when people interrupt me. <laughs> yes, I, that is me. My husband's like, where'd you go? What are you thinking about? And yeah. I'm like, don't worry, like mind your business. That's yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> and, you know, I like to say, I always say to them, oh, I'm, you know, I'm planning plots in my head, which isn't always true, to be perfectly honest. Sometimes I'm just, you know, thinking about Bridgerton or something like that. Yes. <laughs> and that's perfectly acceptable. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah. So that would be my kind of warning, I think. Although mm-hmm. nobody ever pays any attention to it, I might add. We read on your website that your first proper job was as a film journalist. Can you tell us about it? Um, Yeah, well, basically, I mean, that was basically a film. It's a posh name for a film reviewer because Mm -hmm. um, I worked in TV listings for a long time in TV listings magazines. So I think Mm -hmm. your one would be kind of TV guide would be the equivalent. Mm -hmm. Um, And I've always been a massive film um, buff. And I sort of managed eventually to become a film reviewer as a result of that. Um, and so I did, I did that for about 20 years, actually. But um, And it used to be really well paid because I worked for a national newspaper. Eventually, the work all dried up, really, because there's so much of it free online now. But, yeah. you know, um, most publications won't pay big money unless you're a name mm-hmm. for film reviews. And also, I was kind of recycling stuff because if you're doing film reviews for tv the films just keep coming back and so I just had a whole massive archive and by the end I was earning loads <laughs> of money for just giving them the same reviews over and over again. so it was really kind of disappointing when it all kind of collapsed but um but by then I'd already got my first publishing contract um with Mills and Boone so it kind of worked out okay and actually this is probably more my dream job because there's a limit to how much you can find to say about some of the films that are on telly I can tell you that 
Fair enough. So were you reviewing like um, like films made for TV or like were you going to the movies and watching stuff? I think this is so cool. We have not talked about this before. So like what were what's an example of something that you watched to review? Oh, well, I, basically I was watching stuff that would be appearing on TV. So not necessarily just TV movies. Um, okay. and to, to be perfectly honest with you, I had to make up some reviews because it's very it's very hard to get copies of some of the films they show on TV. Sure. I, could, I could probably say that now that I'm not doing this job anymore. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I would go and see previews quite a lot. I mean, like big, big, Films. I mean, one of the films, I remember one of the films I went to see that I thought was absolutely hilarious. And I wrote this, it was a really awful film called Shining Through. I mean, this is dating me. And it was a film and it was basically set in the war and it had Melanie Griffiths and Michael Douglas. And I went to see the film and I thought it was supposed to be a comedy because it was mm. so ridiculous. <laughs> and so I wrote this quite glowing review of it, saying it's absolutely hilarious. And of course, it wasn't supposed to be a comedy. It was actually supposed to be a drama. <laughs> you know, it was like, it was so bad that it was actually hilarious. But, you know, those are the kind of, I used to go and see quite a lot of big, you know, pre, the big films are always previewed by the, um, the production companies. Mm-hmm. So we, we'd get, previews to those we'd get to go and see those um and then it was just a lot of watching films on on um dvd basically mm-hmm. and i mean obviously now they're streaming so it's much easier to see this stuff but at the time it was kind of you had to get the production companies and the tv companies to send you dvds which was ugh, quite laborious and it, a lot of watching just really boring crap basically yeah. <laughs> But <laughs> I couldn't find anything to say about. So actually, by the time I'd finished that job, I was quite, quite glad. You were kind of, yeah, I mean, I love, I love watching movies, but it's kind of tedious when you're watching them and you're having to take notes the whole time. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So did yeah. the world of streaming, I was very reluctant. At, I remember hearing about Redbox. I think Redbox, for, at first started out like they would send you a movie or something. I can't, I yeah. never did it at first. Yeah. <laughs> uh, or or Netflix, Net, no, Netflix. Netflix would like mail you a movie, I guess. They had a yeah called Love Film that was a similar sort of thing where they'd post you the DVD and then you'd yeah. send it. Yeah. So did I mean, that change the world of film journalism? Like once everything, because even now TV shows, you can, like I can watch I Love Lucy on Hulu now. So did that kind of yeah. change the world of that? Oh. Absolutely. And I mean, the thing is, there's so much um, film information online now. Mm-hmm. I mean, IMDb was a big go to because you could kind of read all about the plots without having to write endless notes and stuff. Yeah, I mean, I think streaming makes it so much more accessible. And mm-hmm. also, there's just loads of online reviewers now, whereas of course, in those, when I was first starting out, it was all very kind of compartmentalised and only some people you know, you, you would just get the preview stuff if the company sent it to you. Mm-hmm. But now, I mean, yeah, it's much, much more accessible. I mean, I think it would be a much easier job now because half of my job was just chasing up prints of, you know, DVDs of movies to watch um, because we always had a deadline. Like the film, you know, the pages yeah. had to be in like two weeks before the, the stuff was airing on television. And if you didn't get it in in time, you then had to kind of either not review the film or make it up. 
But it'd be similar to book reviewers because there's such an online community of it now that they don't, uh, you know, publishers don't have to pay anybody for book reviews because people are just giving them for free on Amazon and Goodreads. And, you know, I mean, yeah, they're sending out a digital copy or an, uh, an, an art copy, but I guess it would be the same thing, you know? They're not yeah. really paying for the review. They're just sending you a copy of the book, right? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And I mean, it used to be a, a, I mean, film journalism was kind of like a whole respected mm-hmm. thing to be doing. But now it's just like there's so much content available. that, mm-hmm. And I mean, in a way, I think that's quite good, actually, because I feel like the problem was that there was just a small select. I mean, there were virtually no women doing it for a start. Yeah. And, you know. And, and there was very little diversity in the base. It was mostly kind of old white men. I mean, especially in the UK. Mm-hmm. And so it was very kind of niche what they liked. So actually, I think it's really good that it's much more sort of inclusive now. And that has really, but it, it also meant that the job just became like, you couldn't earn money at it anymore. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what is your guilty pleasure? Oh, now you see, I had to think about this because there are a lot of pleasures I have that I'm not terribly guilty about. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I kind of, I mean, there's the one thing, I mean, I love doing jigsaw puzzles. Mm. And I always used to, I mean, I know it sounds so boring, but I get a bit obsessive about them. And I used to do one every Christmas and I wouldn't do any others because I just get a bit too, I kind of command all the flat surfaces in our kitchen and so I do it for Christmas and then I wouldn't do it until the next Christmas but then of course the lockdown happened and we were kind of stuck in the house with just the four of us and I got a bit carried away (laughs) (laughs) and I got to the stage where I mean my husband was trying to make me feel guilty about it because he was saying well we can never use the kitchen table because you've always got a freaking puzzle on it <laughs> so so and then my friend abby green who's like my best mate my best mate in writing circles um sent me a presents cover um two thousand pieces of this <gasps> presents cover for oh my, my gosh a really great present and like a real mean thing to do because <laughs> half of that cover is white I yes, mean, yes. White yeah. and I literally spent three months doing it on our kitchen table and by the end of it I mean my husband's birthday was coming up and he was finally able to have some people around and he said if that puzzle is not off the table (laughs) I'm smashing it up (laughs) and after having spent three months putting it together I was like I had a mad kind of session of kind of finishing it off overnight and I but I actually wanted to kill Abby Green by the end of it (laughs) (laughs) We love Abby. (laughs) Well, I love her too most of the time. time, Yeah. (laughs) By the end of that thing, I was like, Jesus. I had to frame it because usually I just, you know, tip them back in the box and send them to the charity shop. But I had to frame it because I thought that is three months of my life right there. (laughs) I was going to ask, like, what did you do with it? Like, if you do something as phenomenal as that, you can't just Mm. take it apart and put it back in the box. yeah, no, I had to get, a, I had to buy a frame for it. And it took me an age to, we, me and I had my niece staying from France. And so we figured out a way to kind of paint glue on it and stick it together. And yeah, oh it was like gosh. a whole major production, basically. Oh, wow. <laughs> my husband wouldn't let me put it. I wanted to put it 
in the middle of the living room because I said sure. that is like two of my greatest achievements right there yeah. writing books and finishing that freaking puzzle and he was <laughs> like he was like no it's not going anywhere where I can see it so it's down my <laughs> That's that's when you mail it back to Abby. <laughs> Be like, yeah. here you go. <laughs> I'm really tempted to get her a two thousand piece blooming cover of her part of her title. Right? Yeah, I'm totally, I'm totally there for that. <laughs> so maybe this answers it. But do you have any hidden talents? Doing two thousand piece mostly white jigsaw puzzles. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What's the best purchase you've treated yourself to this year? Well, I think I'm. My mum likes to say this, but I think this is true of me too. I'm definitely an experientialist, not a materialist. Mm-hmm. So I don't tend to buy. I mean, I don't spend on clothes really much or mm-hmm. shoes or anything like that. But um, definitely, my best purchases are always trips or holidays or nice. you know, days out. And I think probably. I mean, I've just come back from a fantastic one week cycling holiday in the Scottish Highlands, which was <sighs> amazing. I mean, we did loads of cycling, which nearly killed me. But um, but the views were just astonishing. I mean, like these beautiful kind of hidden glens and you know that was great but I think probably my best purchase this year we went me and my older sister borrowed my mum's camper van and went to um a festival wilderness festival it was and um, they cancelled it the year before so and we took our four kids who are all grown up now um and it was just fantastic I mean we love going to festivals together because we love dancing and neither of our husbands really like dancing so mm-hmm. and it's kind of four days of um bacchanalian <laughs> <laughs> with uh you know just dancing and you know hanging out with the kids mm-hmm. and not so much with the kids as well because our, our, our music takes a slightly different theirs. And the headline act was um, this band called Rudimental, which we both love. So mm-hmm. that was really cool, yeah. What's one thing you find yourself nostalgic for? I think that for me would have to be our local borders. We used to have a big borders. I live in London and um, they had a big borders in at the Angel in Islington. Mm-hmm. Um, and they used to have a romance section and it was just this massive bookshop with this big romance section where they used to sell all the I mean because you don't need it so much now because of Kindle and um, you know digital books but um, I just used to love going there and browsing and when I my first book came out in 2007 I made my two sons go with me to find <laughs> it on the shelf and take <laughs> And they were so not into that because they're right. Yeah, it was called "Bedded by a Bad Boy," and it had a cover to match. What the? I mean, I've got two sons, and they were both kind of like, "Yeah, whatever, mum." I mean, yeah. really, but they were kind of cool about it as well. I mean, they could kind of see that it was it was quite cool to have their mum as a kind of a big boy. deal. Yeah, yeah, kind of a big deal, but kind of not. Kind of, yeah. I mean, if they had had Instagram at the time, I don't think they'd be putting any pictures. Oh. <laughs> so this is what you're doing, Mom, late at night. Yeah. This is what you're writing about. Yeah, but I really miss, I really miss that Borders, I tell you, because I used to love going in and just browsing. Mm-hmm. I feel like my Barnes and Nobles, I mean, they have a decent romance mm-hmm. section, but nothing that blows me away but also I've noticed a lot of romance titles are just put in with fiction 
Yes. And I get like what's it? It's shelving. Like they don't have the shelf space for everything. I get that. I just want to walk. I think that's why I really want to go to like Chicago. My mom lives yep. there and they have Love Sweet Arrow, like a romance mm-hmm. bookstore. Like mm-hmm. <laughs> I want to yeah. experience that like once in life. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they, they used to have a romance bookstore in Charing Cross Road, which mm-hmm. is quite near. It's about a 15 20 minute bus ride from here and that was fantastic it was actually crime they had a crime section and that's gone now as well but the thing is in the UK they there's only one major bookstore bookstore chain which is called Waterstones and they are such snobs about <laughs> romance they don't are they cuz Sarah and I dream of coming to the UK we feel like they won't let us in but we want to go to Waterstones <laughs> they definitely won't let us into America at the moment. <laughs> but, yeah yeah I mean they know they don't have they don't have romance sections in any of those shops and it really Mm -hmm. pisses me off I mean I have actually gone into Waterstones and complained about it and they just look at me like I'm you know mad but Mm -hmm. um because Mills and Boone being over there that they would feel like that towards romance I mean it's Mills and freaking Boone yeah, well, Mills and freaking Boone don't even get, they basically get into kind of bookshops that are in the stations and stuff yeah. like that. Wow. Yeah, but not really, they don't even sell it in Waterstones. Wow. So, oh yeah, I mean, it's a shocker. It's really upsetting because they have a crime section, they have a sci-fi section, mm-hmm. they have like, you know every other section you can think of but they don't have they even have a horror section in my local waterstones but they don't have and i'm seeing a thread through this which makes me even more annoyed <laughs> as to why they don't have a romance section so you know it's uh yeah it's really annoying that's frustrating that's interesting so do a lot of readers over there just buy from the mills and boone website or Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, I think they must. I think they did have a big increase in sales over the lockdown, um, you know, obviously online sales. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think a lot of people do buy them when they're kind of traveling and stuff. They have them in, uh, they, they do have outlets in some of the supermarkets. I was going to ask, yeah, yeah. do they have that for your big box? Yeah, and actually when I used to buy Mills and Boons myself before I started writing them, I used to get them in my local Sainsbury's, which is a local supermarket here. Okay. Um, But, yeah, they've – I mean, but I think it's partly because they're a bit kind of up themselves, Waterstones, and it's only (laughs) only, (laughs) – I hope. (laughs) <laughs> Never mind then, Sarah. We're not going to Waterstones. Yeah, no, we're not going. We yeah, just no. wanted to get the cute covers. That's all. <laughs> right? Yeah. Now we just have to go to the grocery store. We're going to go to the grocery store. Shout out to grocery stores. They have been coming through for romance readers for years. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. On both sides I mean, of the pond. Because yeah, that's where yeah. I buy all mine. Are at the grocery store, at Walmart, or whatever. Mm. You know, I don't go into what we have over here, Chapters Indigo. So yeah. I can say Barnes and Noble does have Harlequin. Yeah, yeah. they do. And, then, and I love going to America because one of the things I love doing is going to the big Barnes and Nobles yep. or Walmarts or any of those places where they mm-hmm. have big book sections and it's just fantastic. And they're not snobby about romance, you know, no. they absolutely sell it. And so it's just, yeah, it's like a treasure trove if you come from the UK, I tell you. 
And the, the Walmarts here in Canada, I, I don't know if it's all of them, but the ones in my area, they sell the the Harlequins three for $15. Every time I go to the grocery store, I'm like, my husband wow. says again, I'm like, they fell in the cart. What am I supposed to do? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, yeah, absolutely. I, the problem is, of course, when I'm coming back to the UK, there's a limit to how many books I can bring. So I've got to carry them. <laughs> Well, I'm glad to know we're good for something to those of our friends on the, you know, overseas. On the other side of the pond. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah absolutely. We love to hear the story of the bodice ripper you wrote at age 13. I saw that. I saw that. And I thought, how can I describe this awful story? Because no, there's, there's no awful answers here. No. It's so unsound. It's just unbelievable. I mean, basically, I was really into, I mean, part of my being a massive film fan, when I was a teenager and a kid, I was really into Westerns because I was just so into that whole myth of the cowboy and da da da. Mm -hmm. And I, there was one film I particularly liked called The Searchers, which is about stars John Wayne, who's not your obvious choice for a romance <laughs> hero. And he, and he's basically in this film, he's searching for his niece who's been stolen by Comanches. And so I had this whole story where the hero was a, a cavalry officer and the heroine was a I mean, it just sounds so awful now. I can't even. <laughs> and the, yeah, and the heroine was, um, I think she was Sue or something. I mean, I never did any research, obviously. So it was, I mean, just an awful kind of premise, really. But she, yeah, so it was all that kind of, I didn't get very far with it, though, to be fair. Came to a dead end fairly quickly because I couldn't write the scenes. I mean, I'd read, I'd read some of my mum's. She had some of those. I mean, I think you're going to ask probably later about how I became a romance reader. And I remember mm -hmm. finding books by this woman called, they were real bodice rippers. What were they called? Um, Kathleen Woody Weiss, I think her yes. name was. And she wrote all these really, I mean, kind of very, very lurid uh, but I was reading them basically for the sexy bits, as most people do at that. <laughs> but I kind of like, when I came to write my own one, it started out quite well. You know, I had the whole exposition going on and it was all set in a Western setting, which was completely coming out of Hollywood circa 1950. Um, <laughs> And then I kind of got to the bit where they were kind of attracted to each other and I couldn't get past that really. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the minute as the bodice had to be ripped, I was like, okay, what happens next? <laughs> I had this Kathleen E. Woody Weiss to guide me in this situation. I'm not even really sure what's going on in those bits, but they just sound exciting, you know. <laughs> so our next question is, you know, how you became a romance reader. I, I mean, obviously, we know now mom was reading Kathleen mm -hmm. Woody Weiss. Yeah, I mean, that book, I, I haven't reread it since, but um, I just remember it being, oh, I just, some of the scenes in it. I think the one I read, was the guy was a he was a, a I don't know was he a he was an imprisoner in a jail and the heroine was this really spoiled aristocratic woman who needed to marry someone for some unknown reason and so she basically you know went to this jail in London uh, you know circa 
18, I don't know, 1730 or something, got him to agree she was going to basically sleep with him for one night. So he was this guy who'd been in prison for, I don't know, four years. He was desperate. And she was going to, um, that was her trade-off. He would marry her, give her his name. And then, of course, they had to clean him up before he was going to marry, before they were actually going to sleep together. And, of course, they they cleaned him up and he was completely gorgeous. Mm-hmm. And she was really intimate. And then I can't really remember what happened after that, but it was it was such a, I mean, it was a clever conflict, to be fair. And then I think he finds, he comes back, he escapes or something like that. And he eventually comes back and gets his revenge on her in all sorts of exciting ways. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, but that was my first experience with romance. And I, you know, I read, I didn't, that was the only one I read, really, because there wasn't a lot of availability of kind of romantic books at the time in, you know, for a 13 year old. And then, but when I had my first child, I remembered really kind of enjoying that whole idea of just, you know, relationships and happy endings and Mm -hmm. sexy bits. And so I started reading romance again. And at that time, you know, when you you're sort of saddled with a child for the first time and it's just you're not sleeping and you have to do everything in short bursts Mm -hmm. and it was just particularly category romance was great for that it was just brilliant escapism really. At what point did you decide to pursue writing romance professionally and what did the world of romance look like at the time? Okay so i probably spent a long time writing my first manuscript I think it was about four years and it was in between writing for you know doing the film reviewing stuff Mm -hmm. and I was at home at the time with kids and I had I was working kind of three days a week but so so I was just kind of basically because I was recycling all these reviews I did have a bit of extra time while the kids were in childcare or at school and so I was able to kind of eke out some time to write a bit and it took me about yeah four years to finish the first manuscript I at the time you had to post I mean this was right just before it became all kind of digital really mm-hmm. so this was like 2000 I, I eventually sold my second manuscript to Mills and Boone and that was in 2007 just prior to that you were still kind of posting stuff off I sent a query letter and obviously the query letter was very persuasive because I straight away got a recommend you know they asked for the full Mm -hmm. which was great but then I you know I'm good at writing query letters because I'm a journalist (laughs) but it turns out I was crap at writing romance because I waited about eight months and got a kind of one one line reply saying not Mm -hmm. what we're looking for not even kind of thanks Mm. (laughs) but by then I'd written another book and I sent it to a thing. We have a, a organization here called the Romantic Novelists Association, and they do a thing called the New Writers Scheme, where they basically pair your manuscript with a reader who writes in, uh, a writer that writes in your genre. And I mean, I did actually become a reader mm-hmm. for the scheme later on because it's just such a brilliant they basically give you a full um kind of report on your whole manuscript and that first manuscript they basically gave me lots of really good pointers about why it was so crap but they were also very encouraging about the things they thought were good I mean they said you know the, your voice is very good your your dialogue's great you know the, the big problem I had was with conflict and understanding character arcs and all that kind of stuff um and so I'd learned a lot by the time I'd written the second book and um that was the one that got accepted which was great at this time like what was really 
popular Mm -hmm. in romance like was like I feel like right now we're having a really big rom-com moment was was this like the big heyday of paranormal was historicals really big back then like what did the world that you were entering into Mm -hmm. look like what's interesting is I got accepted for uh, it was a line called modern heat over here which I think was called presents extra it went out in presents yeah so this was like 15 years ago I guess Mm -hmm. when is it 2007 I'm a bit confused yeah 14 years ago and at the time they were definitely trying in category romance particularly they were definitely trying to make it they were looking at new I mean I think they tried this kind this before but they were trying to do more of a kind of author voice led line and that eventually gave birth to kiss but I got accepted in modern heat which was kind of like it was contemporary humor, but also with a real kind of um, those kind of classic tropes and conflicts. So, I mean, it was, I loved it because it was perfect for what I loved reading and writing. It was all kind of like alpha heroes, but also kind of alpha heroines and um, lots of. Uh, great conflicts and classic tropes but at the same time trying to bring it into very much more contemporary I mean not that they're not always contemporary because obviously they move with the times but you know doing more kind of dialogue led um, more kind of comedy more humor not so much comedy as humor um, mm-hmm. and I just I love that kind of quick fire dialogue and those kind of deep conflicts underneath so that was yeah they were just kind of that was the beginning of modern heat and that lasted. I think they eventually turned it into Reva, um, mm. and it just didn't really work. <laughs> didn't. Yeah, and Kiss, Kiss was another. I mean, Kiss Reva was kind of a precursor to Kiss in the US, which was such a shame because it was such a great bunch of. I mean, some of the writers in that um, line, I just formed really great friendships with. I mean, people like Natalie Anderson, who I'm doing another. Um, I did a. a she now writes for Presents as well as me, and um, she, we did a, a duo together um, for a, lot, a couple of Christmases to go, and we do, we're working on another one now. We're kind of oh, nice. brainstorming together. And also Amy Andrews, who I yep. worked on a couple of um, uh, different series with for Tule, um, and Ke- uh, oh, Kelly Hunter, and um, just a lot of Kate... Kate Hardy I mean a lot of really fantastic authors with great voices um and it was yeah it was so much fun and we had a great like little um chat um you know email chat that we where we'd all be kind of and Kimberly Lang was another one from uh Alabama so it was just a great kind of combination of kind of British uh, mm. American Australian um authors and it was just really really fun yeah Sarah and I talk about the kiss line a lot mm. we've been talking about it a lot recently and it just feels like there is a presence that is missing a little bit and I'm yeah. wondering the more like just listening to you talk about because we know that the the romance true love forever series has definitely yeah. changed i'm wondering if we're seeing a little bit of kiss remnants in the direction that romance is going because i think that the kiss's presence is just def that what that line was about it feels like it is definitely missing a little mm-hmm. bit in what we are getting in category yeah i mean i think what's interesting is a lot of the kiss voices particularly i mean like kelly like natalie like I mean, Amy's now writing more for um, Entangled, but um, Mm -hmm. they definitely bought... I mean, I think Joss Wood also was writing for Kiss right at the end. Um, They've definitely brought them more into Presents. Now, we're writing more kind of classic 
presents. So there is a slight difference. Like the heroes in Kiss were younger and, I mean, they were still very alpha, but at the same time they were a bit more kind of bad boys rather Mm -hmm. than kind of, you know, whatever, shakes or whatever. But I definitely, yeah, I think... I mean, I think they tried to sell that line more on uh, author voice and it just didn't, because it was just, I think it wasn't really, as a series, it wasn't really kind of, it wasn't, I think the problem was it wasn't, because each of the voices were quite individual, it wasn't really telling readers what they were going to get, like they get but I definitely think with Presents now, there's a wider range of voices than there was before Kiss happened and then Mm -hmm. Unhappened and they kind of incorporated that a bit more into the Presents line so Presents has slightly bigger I feel like there's I I, when I have talks with my editor about it she does say that they're looking for more of a range of kind of from feel good to really intense Mm -hmm. you know like before it was very intense and classic and now it's kind of there's a bit more of a range so there's a bit more room to maneuver I mean Mm -hmm. I'm I definitely feel like I've got a, a home in presents now which is great um and I love I love writing the books um but yeah I agree could there be more could there be another line like that but it seems like they've tried it quite a few times and it's never quite and it's hard to know whether it's because of the way they're marketing it or whether it's just something that readers aren't you know they don't feel like the the reader promise is is Mm -hmm. kind of tangible enough for them to really keep picking up all the books you know um, I don't know. I mean, I think the presents promise is very specific, mm-hmm. and readers know pretty much what they're going to get. Um, although I do sometimes get comments on Goodreads saying, you know, what is, you know, where is, why is this heroine so mouthy or whatever, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but I feel like, you know, that's just a small minority of um, people mm-hmm. who are very kind of, um, I mean, and, you know, that's at their perfectly entitled to their opinion I have absolutely no problem with some readers saying yeah I didn't like your book that's that's absolutely fine I think you know not everyone's going to like everything and uh, readers are perfectly entitled to say what they think and not to buy any of my books again you know (laughs) but um yeah but it's interesting yeah I think category is definitely yeah in some ways it's definitely becoming more um more interesting and more I mean I'm really, really pleased to see so many more voices now being represented, which I think is just so long overdue. So it's it's all interesting. It's all kind of constantly evolving, isn't it? So before we move on, I wanted to, I took down some notes of just things that I wanted to ask you from what we've been talking about. So when you first started, you talked about you had to work on conflict and character arc. Can you talk a little bit about that, what you learned and how you kind of figured out what needed to be done to make the story work? Yeah, I mean, what's interesting, I mean, it's basically romance at its core is is character-led storytelling. Um, and that's what makes it kind of distinctive from pretty much any other form of fiction in a lot of ways is that it, it the core of the story is the story of the characters and how they develop and kind of interact with each other. Mm-hmm. And so you have to have a really good grip when you're... now. You don't necessarily have this when you start the story. I'm very much a pantser, so I tend to work my way into stories. But you have to understand the different layers of conflict going on between your characters. So you kind of have the basic thing that's pushing them together and also pulling them apart. 
and and yet underneath that are the layers that are revealed during the story of that internal conflict and how it's changing and evolving during your story and i that was the thing that i really struggled i mean i think all writers because i i do a, a writing course and um all people who write romance struggle with this and it's different in every book so you struggle with it with every book which is slightly <laughs> annoying it never gets any easier but it's you know it's the stuff that's intrinsic to the characters that's embedded in their psyche for whatever reason like it may be to do with their backstory it may be to do with their circumstance in the now or their ways in which they process things. I mean, obviously every person is different. So you have to build the character from the ground up and figure out all those things that are at play. I mean, it is a bit like a jigsaw puzzle, <laughs> putting it together. <laughs> because, I mean, and, and it's a great, it's a fantastic revelatory moment when you're writing to, to suddenly think, oh, so that's that's why he did that, or this is how he would respond or she would respond in this situation. And it's always getting to the truth of the characters and developing them over this arc of the story where, you know, and with obviously with a the romance, they need to be helping each other develop, if you like. And that can be through, you know, obvious conflict like arguments or, dis, you know, discord with what their goals are and then adapting their goals um, and their motives motivations but it's also and you know like the big tropes are great for delivering that massive internal conflict to start with like I don't know or external conflict usually but that's what I mean when I say I mean I think each story is different so you're kind of on that learning arc in every book and I've often had long conversations with I mean particularly with Abby Green because we tend to be on the other end of the phone to each other when we're struggling with a book and we will kind of say, okay, so this is the situation, but I can't seem to figure out what what's going to happen next or how how would he react or what can I do to make this even worse for them? Because that's the other thing. You're kind of torturing your characters while you're while they're kind of discovering their romance together or they're falling in love. I mean, the other thing that a lot of people do when they're writing a romance is they forget to actually show the couple falling in love. So it's very in it's very it's often the case that you're kind of resolving conflict but not actually explaining why that conflict would be resolved or how it would be resolved or how they're going to grow and change during the course of the story. I mean, that's why it's so interesting for me because it is, to a certain extent, a very fictional universe because, you know, people fall in love all the time, but it's not always quite as dramatic or, <laughs> you know, or you're not so self-aware about why these things happen but as an author you have to be really aware of all the kind of processes going on that are making mm. these things happen so I mean I do actually have when I get really into a book one of the best things when you're writing a book is when you really understand the conflict it doesn't happen very often I have to admit I often leave help from my editor with that one but um when you really understand the conflict and you can the characters are talking to you and you know what they're saying is totally authentic because you understand where they're coming from and you know and it's the process of discovering all that that you know is the kind of arc of your story really mm -hmm. sorry I got a bit technical there <laughs> it wasn't boring. no 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 we're nerds for stuff like that <laughs> right <laughs> I mean I'll give you an example I, I tell you I, I did a book where the hero was a um barrister which in the UK is like the person the the the, the 
lawyer in court who presents the case. Mm -hmm. And he was a Queen's counsel, very young, um, but brilliant. And so he was really good at kind of articulating thoughts and feelings in terms of in a courtroom setting. You know, he was very well educated, very smart. Um, But the one thing he couldn't do was articulate his feelings because he'd had this awful thing in his past where his father had basically had a mistress and he'd taken it and his cover for going to see his mistress was taking his son to a you know a football game in you know where he was supposed to be playing football every Saturday morning and the father would take him in the car and just leave him in the car and the son knew from an early age that he was going to see the you know, and then he would have to lie to his mother and his sister. And so as a result of that, he kind of completely internalized all his, he felt so guilty about what his father was doing to his mother and knowing this horrible secret and, you know, and also not being able to play any football, which he was slightly mm-hmm. pissed off about. <laughs> and so, yeah, so he couldn't talk about his feelings. And then I put him with this, you know, very lush kind of outspoken cupcake baker who the only thing she did was talk about her feelings all the time. <laughs> and she was very upfront about her feelings. And she had this whole thing in her backstory where her brother had disappeared and she was kind of, upset about that and she'd always felt like her brother hadn't you know why didn't he tell me he was so unhappy so she was always kind of pushing trying to find out what what's wrong all the time in terms of emotional so she was very emotionally you know astute and he was very kind of buttoned up and I just thought that was a great conflict for someone who'd made their living kind of talking articulating stuff but he couldn't talk about his feelings and then he gets Yeah, yeah, stuck with this woman who does nothing but try and make him talk about his feelings, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, yeah, that was great. I love that. That was a kiss book, I think. Yeah. yeah. Like, all you want to do is talk about your feelings. It was a kind of a bit of a cliche, really. I mean, I kind of quite like to do that in reverse now and have it be the guy who talks about his feelings yes. and the woman who's really buttoned up, you know. But, um, <laughs> but at the time, it just kind of seemed to work for him mm-hmm. as a character, yeah. So we've talked writing Kiss, we've talked Presents, but you have titles with Tempted and Reva and Thule all over the place. So mm-hmm. can you talk a little bit of, right, about just writing across different lines and for category across different publishers? I loved writing for Thule because they let me write cowboy books. <laughs> and that was like, oh, fantastic. You know, I love doing that. And it was kind of comforting as well because they have this whole um small town called Marietta I mean I think they've got quite a few now but it was like set up uh you know so that you you have the whole town and all the characters all the secondary characters already in place so that mm-hmm. made it really easy to kind of slot your characters into the stories so I loved love I love writing for them yeah I mean I guess my voice has always been the same really I mean that's how I you know my characters are characters I want to write and I don't really adapt my voice that much according to the different lines I'm writing for. It's just a question of creating stories that will appeal within that promise. um, I mean, I've done a lot more kind of, since I've written for Presents, I've done quite a few more virgin heroines than I ever did before. (laughs) (laughs) um, Because that's kind of a go-to staple for um, Presents readers. They they like Mm -hmm. it. So that's, I mean... I've explored that a lot more but yeah it's the challenges are slightly different but it's really and I mean I, the the single title the longer books I've written have also been a kind of different very different learning curve in the sense that 
the the in category romance it's like you want to get rid of the external plot as quickly as possible mm-hmm. so that you can kind of focus very closely on the romantic relationship because you've only got like a short word count but with longer stories you can be much more but then I discovered that actually you need more external structure to the story and that has to play in to a certain extent into the internal structure to actually keep keep the story going for that amount of time. So that was, yeah, that was interesting as well. Your most recent women's fiction novel, just like in the movies, which came out in March of 2021, features a hopeless romantic, a hopeless cynic, and a crumbling cinema in Notting Hill. It just, as soon as I read about it, I one clicked it I had to buy it um because I have to read it <laughs> can you tell us more about this book and what it is about women's fiction novels that you find so enjoyable to write um I think I mean one of the things I find really enjoyable is that it does free you up from some of the conventions of um category romance so like mm-hmm. uh, one of the earlier books I wrote was called um so now you're back it was my first longer book and that was um, a, an older couple who, I mean, I think they're in their late 30s, but they'd actually had kids, a child together when they were really young. And then they'd split up. He basically just deserted her. And then they get back together in the book. Um, and, but I also had their 18-year-old daughter as, and her relationship with a young guy who was um, looking after a kid brother as a kind of manny, I suppose you'd call it. Um, so I had I had those two twin stories, but it was just really nice to write about slightly more mature people and, you know, teenagers. And it just frees you up a bit more to, to the kind of characters you can write. Um, and also, like I said, you can have more of an external structure to the story. Um, but my longer books are very much still kind of, they're rom-coms really, I would say. And just like in the movies came from two of my twin passions, mm-hmm. one of which is London mm-hmm. and cinemas. And I, I grew up in Notting Hill. Um, I was actually born in a little two bedroom flat in Notting Hill. And we used to go to, my mum used to kind of drop us up. We had Saturday morning cinema in the UK. I don't know if you have it in the US where you, basically it was kind of like parents would drop their kids off and they'd just spend the whole morning in the cinema on their own creating you know having popcorn fights and you know <laughs> I mean I, I it was kind of completely unsupervised I don't know I mean we did actually once get kicked out of a cinema me and my brother <laughs> <laughs> running up and down the aisles while um this film was playing so um and you know we, we were like I don't know I was about seven and my brother was about five and we were just sitting outside the cinema for about three hours waiting for my mum to arrive Oh my gosh. It's just like, you know, only in the 70s could you get away with that kind of light supervision. Yeah, I mean, it's just, but that we had like a little tiny cinema on the next, and it's still there. It's now a theatre, and it's a beautiful old kind of, it's, I think it was originally a cinema in the 19. tens or something it's a beautiful old building and they used to show it was an independent cinema then uh, when we used to go there um so I kind of based the royale which is the cinema in this book on that Mm -hmm. um and then of course my love of movies so um and and the book is kind of themed around five films which kind of have reflections the themes of the films have kind of reflections within the content of the story that's going on I mean it's basically the story of the woman who's managing the cinema Mm -hmm. with a guy who's like her surrogate dad who dies at the beginning of the story and he leaves half the cinema to her and half to his nephew who he's never met who's the who's the son of a kind of cinematic icon who died 15 years before 
and the the guys, the man who owns the cinema, his sister, who became a sort of famous Hollywood actress. So this guy hates the movies because his whole childhood, he just happened to look just like his dad, who was this cinematic icon. And um, I kind of had this idea from um, the idea of like, if Elvis had had a child and it had looked exactly like him, like a a son who looked mm-hmm. exactly like him what would it be like for that child you know like someone who's really kind of iconic who mm-hmm. looks exactly like their parent but obviously is a completely different person so I kind of went with that idea and um, so he's a real cynic he hates the movies and make-believe he spent the whole of his childhood being kind of dragged around to film sets and then the heroine has kind of used this cinema as a, an escape when she was a kid she used to go there to escape from her home life which wasn't very happy and so she's kind of sees cinema as totally a kind of magical mystery world which is kind of you know keeping her um safe so it's like they've got these two and they they inherit the cinema together and it's on its last legs basically and then that's the story and then I've got the sort of five films that kind of reflect as they're watching the movies together, mm-hmm. which they're playing as a kind of a retrospective at the cinema for the guy who's died, because they're five of his favourite films. So it's, but also hers. But I mean, yeah, I loved writing it. It was actually quite hard, though, because, <laughs> you know, try to, you, you suddenly think, oh, you don't want to force the plot so that the characters are kind of reflecting too much the movies that the book is themed around but at the same time you want it to be enough so the the kind of overarching theme of the book actually works so that was yeah that was quite a mind-bending experience but um, were they films that you made up or were they actual films yeah no they were actual films so the the five films if I can remember are um The Wizard of Oz, About the Boy which is Mm -hmm. a British rom-com um last of the mohicans broke back mountain and I, I always forget oh the way we were which is that kind of really yeah yeah the melodrama so I I just kind of had this I wanted they weren't they're not necessarily my favorite films although I do like really like all of them Mm -hmm. but um they they were kind of just I I had to find a way to sort of reflect the relationships and yet at the same time it was the films themselves the different way that they respond to the different movies is also in the book Mm -hmm. um as he becomes less cynical and she begins to get more realistic about life and you know how she's kind of basically used it too much as an escape and you know she has to become more um more realistic really Um, but she's I mean I loved her as a character because she's so you know she's so just sweet really and you know she 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 loves the movies but she's also so they've had this whole community within the cinema that's really supportive and like they've created their own family I mean I love that Mm -hmm. whole you know like um tv shows where they create their own family out of the friends that they have you know like Mm -hmm. I don't know like Pose or something like that you know those kind of stories where um it's like you've got your own family that you've made yourself because yeah. you know your your actual family is not supporting you you know so I love those kind of stories as well <laughs> I can't remember the network I think it may be here like CBS I can't remember but on Hulu they've they've had this special that's like the history of the sitcom and that's one of the things uh I think the the gentleman from Shit's Creek I think Oh, yeah. He, he said that that's basically what sitcoms are. All of them are just found family. And I'm found like, family. you know, yeah. you think back to all of your favorites. And essentially, I mean, I'm watching Mary Tyler Moore for the first time. 
I'm on like season four. And I'm like, basically that's what that is. You know, her, her newsroom is found family and Rhoda and yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I yeah. Love that oh that. yeah. That's so true actually. I've never mm-hmm. got that's a really clever point. Yeah, I think that's really true. And often in rom coms, I mean, the other book I wrote was um, this book called Summer at Willow Tree Farm, and that and that's all kind of set in a farm in in Wiltshire where they it used to be a kind of um, a commune which was really kind of rough and sort of um, you know kind of revolutionary socialists kind of running this <laughs> commune you know sort of feminists and all the rest of it and 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 then it's become this kind of farming co-op basically and the heroine comes back and her mother is is um, living at the co-op with her um, her partner and um, the heroine's kind of had this terrible marriage experience she'd gone off to America married this guy who turned out to be a total prick basically <laughs> and she and she comes back with her 10 year old son and she's but she's really kind of bitter about what's happened with her her mom and dad split up and her mom ended up with um a female partner and um it's so and but then at the same time they kind of create uh and she when she was in the uh, the commune as a kid she she had this kind of love hate but mostly hate teenage relationship with the guy the this guy who was there who had a really um you know her mother his mother was quite you know it neglected him basically and um and of course when she goes back there he's still there (laughs) and he's Mm. now got a child as well so it's he's a single dad so it but I love that kind of whole you're creating this kind of I mean it's all quite idyllic in a way but there's also Mm. all those constant um, you know she finds new friends and a new purpose and she used to be an event planner and so she decides to start this project to create a, a farm a co-op a, a shop at the farm um, where they'll sell all their produce that they're that they're struggling to sell otherwise to supermarkets and that and it's um yeah I really enjoyed writing it but that's the same concept the whole found family thing is just mm-hmm. so because there are so many people I mean I've I've you know, I have a really close knit family, but there are so many people that, um, you know, they they need to find their own families, you know, because for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just think family is such a strong concept, but there's no reason why it has to be a blood relationship. Right. So the billionaire's proposition in Paris is your upcoming Harlequin Presents slash Mills and Boone Modern Romance. Can you share with us where the idea for the story came from and what the book is about? You know, it's funny when you're kind of thinking of where ideas come from. I I mean, I guess I wanted to set a book with an Irish hero because I love Irish heroes. Mm -hmm. Um, My dad was Irish and um, I go to Ireland a lot, partly because of Abby and also my best mate I I have a friend who I met at university we go on a lot we used to go on a lot of American road trips together but we haven't been (laughs) on one for a while um so she lives in Kildare as well so I always go and I was so I love Ireland and um so I wanted to set a book in Ireland and I also wanted I mean this is a virgin heroine as well but it's also quite hard these days to figure out how they'd still be a virgin when they're 24. Um, I just wanted to ask okay 
<laughs> and this this woman, I basically I, I made her a widow. So um, she's a widow, but she'd married this guy who was kind of a childhood friend who had mm-hmm. got basically uh, been terminally ill, and so they got married uh, at nineteen, just before he died, basically. But they were really just friends. They weren't really a, in a romantic relationship, and she kind of did it because he had no other family, and she didn't really have any anyway. So uh, so she's basically you know lots of convoluted ways to make her still a virgin and um so and the hero is it there's a connection basically he's trying to find out my heroine has a half brother who is the father of my hero's sister's secret baby (laughs) so I mean you're probably not following this but anyway it's a part of a two-part um it's a duo basically and the first story is their story she's an mm-hmm. event planner that he hires to um do his other sister he's a billionaire agricultural tech something or other um irish billionaire and um he basically hires her under the pretense of getting her to organize a wedding for his other sister but in reality he's trying to find more out about her brother who is actually mm-hmm. her half-brother, because he's just found out his identity. The sister who's had the secret baby has refused to tell anyone who the father is. And he's now found out because he's had a detective looking for him. He's a bit of a control freak, this guy. Um, and so he wants to kind of find out more. So it's kind of like it's there's a bit of revenge. There's a virgin heroine. Sh- it's a kind of boss secretary type thing going on because he's obviously hired her as a wedding planner. And yeah. And then it, the whole the whole thing kind of he he then kind of ends up inviting her to Paris to some ball and mm. um, yeah so it's great I like I mean the, I think it was for me it's often with presents when I'm doing the presents it's all about thinking of the tropes that I want to have mm-hmm. and then figuring out a good story to go with it and also thinking where I want to set it and mm-hmm. what kind of hero and heroine I want them to be what kind of characters so um so yeah. can we talk about this now that because we've never talked about this with an actual author before but Sarah and I talk about it quite a bit and now it sounds like you know editors will let you all know like this is what you're gonna write essentially, you know, some things that you know readers want. And it Mm -hmm. sounds like some of the feedback is readers want that really specific thing with certain heroines. They want the virgin heroine. Whereas I'm like, I don't want to say that it's not normal to be 24 and a virgin because I don't want it to make it it seem like all young women are out here having sex because I know that's not the case. But for romance to be a genre that's, you know, I don't want to say for women by women, but Mm-hmm. Yeah. Women are the majority of readers. I just question sometimes why, what do you think it is that women readers want to see so much of that for? Because I, I'm like a lot of, most of the women in my life personally that I'm close with, mm-hmm. I can say that's not their reality. No. <laughs> you know? Exactly. It's not mine. And I, I mean, you know, I think the, basically as an author you're only going to write stuff that interests you so for me there has to be a really good reason mm-hmm. um and sometimes the heroine can just be a bit younger but i mean obviously they're not going to be a teenager mm-hmm. um and for me it's all about wh- what will how will that impact on the story what i mean it's often more the case that it will affect the hero more than heroine she's often quite sort of like this is just something that hasn't happened yet or for whatever reason and it will maybe make the hero feel more I don't know like he's somehow made a commitment that he didn't intend to sort of thing 
Um, That's probably where, for me, the interest lies in that trope. But also, I actually, I've done um, A Virgin Hero as well, and uh, several times, and that can also be interesting as well. But it is, yeah, you have to, I mean, it's a bit like the accidental pregnancy trope as well. It's Mm -hmm. really hard to... Figure out how well. that can, you know, because there's so many different forms of contraception now, and there's also options you can take, you know, after conception. So it's quite hard to, and I always kind of want to have that conversation with that particular trope as well, where you make sure that it is actually a choice that they haven't just kind of said, oh, because I'm pregnant, I've got to have the baby kind of thing. I mean, my personal, that's my personal, I do that in my books, because that's my personal opinion, obviously. I mean, that's the way I view it. But, um, but, you know, I think it's interesting with presents. I mean, I don't, I don't make all my heroines virgins, and I'm certainly not asked to. When it comes to what you want to do as an author, you are completely free to create your own stories, use what tropes you want. Mm -hmm. Um, The only real restrictions at the moment are that they don't want to have too many, say, accidental pregnancies in one month. Yeah. (laughs) They kind of cannibalize each other, so it's quite hard for them to market them, you know, because the titles are so, you know descriptive as you like um so you know that's the only thing but so there are classic you know there's the cinderella and the only one bed and what have you so you want to try and mix it up a bit also as an author you don't want to just keep doing the same sure tropes over and over again because you you start to sort of think like oh is there is there actually another way i can approach this but then also yeah like you say i think the thing with presents particularly why those particular tropes are very um uh, popular is because it is really high fantasy mm. so it's not they're not trying to be I think a lot of readers when they read a presents are looking for something that's completely escapist and the whole you know the young heroines and the I mean they don't have to be there doesn't have to be a big differential in age I've written older heroines but um but you know it's that whole first you know your first experience um it's kind of romanticizing that whole idea of mm-hmm. you know early your first big relationship or whatever and I you know the whole concept of yeah I mean uh, to be honest with you sometimes I'm not really sure why the virgin heroine particularly is such a, a draw <laughs> but for me it's about finding things about that fact that can play into their conflicts yeah um, if you see what I mean so like for example with that particular book it was that the minute he found, I mean, the other thing was they had a condom burst on them rather appropriate, you know, rather conveniently. (laughs) It was kind of like when they'd had that first encounter, he, he has this real, he's a real, he has a bit of a white knight complex because he became his, his two younger sisters. He's quite a lot older than his sisters because there were a couple of miscarriages in between. And so um, both his parents had, died by the time he was 18 and so he became their legal guardian so he's a bit overprotective and obsessed with kind of you know rescuing women isn't the right word because he's quite cynical at the same time but his big problem is that he can't really you know he's a bit of a control freak he worries about you know and and so when he finds out one she's a virgin and two she might be pregnant (laughs) For him, it's a massive trigger, and he immediately kind of tries to insist that they should get married, you know. And she's kind of like, What? 
you know, she's she's like, you're not responsible, you know, one, you're not responsible for the fact that I'm a virgin. That was, you know, that was just the way my life panned out because, you know, I married this guy that then died quite soon after the wedding mm-hmm. and, you know, whatever. And, and so, um, and so, and then she was kind of grieving for a long time and protecting herself, which is why she didn't have any relationship. Um, and, and also, you know, she can't quite believe that just because there might be a pregnancy that he wants to marry her. And of course, but at the same time, she has issues in her past that make her want to have that security. And also she she is kind of, she's she's falling in love with him already because he is so protective. And so, you know, she can see he's a bit over the top, but of course she doesn't know the real reasons why he's hired her and why he's invited her to this ball and everything. So mm. when she finds that out, then she's a bit less starry-eyed about him <laughs> but um but you know she's she's kind of young for her age in some ways and yet she's a really astute career woman and you know she's kind of concentrated on a career and blah 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 so I mean I just for me that it worked to make her a virgin in that context um just because for her it wasn't really that big an issue you know mm-hmm. but for him it it really was because he felt like he'd exploited her or something, you know, and she was kind of like, well, yeah, I may have be a virgin, but it doesn't mean that I haven't had sexual experiences, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It was all just, yeah. I mean, it was, for me, it was worth writing. And of, often when I, I do a virgin heroine, it's, it's only if it will, I mean, sometimes they're virgins in their past, you know, like the, the relationship has come it's like a second chance romance kind of mm-hmm. plot. So this has happened when they were much younger. Mm-hmm. So you can work it in that way. But yeah, it's I, I think it's interesting. I mean, I like playing with those kind of tropes just because they are in some ways so far removed from, you know, real the real world. So they kind of create interesting conflicts, really. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. We see from your website that you teach a few different courses at the Professional Writing Academy. Can you tell us more about that and how it came about? Okay, so this, that was, basically they approached uh, Abby Green originally. Okay. Yeah, (laughs) they didn't come to me first, but they went to her and she said, oh, she wasn't particularly interested. They wanted to find someone who had a, uh, you know, who was an author, a romance author, because they were already doing courses in sort of crime fiction and um, other genre fiction and they've got this really I mean they're, they're like seven week courses it's all done online you have a small group of writers mm-hmm. um, and they basically we do we do uh, a, a week based on each uh, lot different elements of craft so we do characterization one we we do kind of opening hooks one week because it's a romance writing course we do kind of emotional turning points and how to deal with those in your story we deal with kind of dialogue Mm -hmm. um and we do like writing um like exercises we do reading examples which the writers then analyze because one of the things that's interesting I think about learning to write is that you can't really learn to write as such I mean you just have to write Mm -hmm. to discover your own voice and what stories interest you and what characters interest you but at the same time there is an element of craft particularly in genre fiction which you also have to to learn so what we're basically doing is looking at kind of developing people's voice is making them confident about the stories they want to write but also looking at elements of craft that they can learn within the context of what they're writing and 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 basically they critique their own stuff and then I also look at everything each week 
and give quite an in-depth critique about um, what they've done. But when I say critique, it's more like always, I mean, just about, we've done the course, I think we've run it, it's seven weeks and we usually do maybe two runs of the course a year or one, depending on how many people um, sign up for it. And we never have more than about, you know, six to 10 people on each course. So it's quite a kind of good focused group of people. Um, and they kind of submit writing exercises each week and then we look at them. And I find for me, it's always usually about, and I, and I kind of feel like I take on the role of say my editor when I'm writing, it's just looking at, it's always the case that with romance, it's understanding those conflicts and how people would authentically react according to their character and their backstory. And often, as a when you go wrong as a writer, it's usually that you're trying to impose a situation which doesn't really work within the context of who these people are. And you can feel yourself. I can feel myself when I'm doing it. I'm kind of writing stuff and thinking, no, this is crap because he wouldn't do this in this situation unless there's something else in his backstory that I don't know about. <laughs> you know, so it's it's often when I'm critiquing writing, it's basically looking at, you know, taking it and saying to people, do you think he would do this? Does mm-hmm. That doesn't feel authentic to me. But if there's a reason why he would do this in this context, tell me what it is kind of thing. So it's all just about, it's really just about giving informed feedback and making them think more deeply about what their characters are doing and saying and how they're reacting to each other. Mm-hmm. But that's yeah. I mean, they came to Abby, and she didn't want to do it. So I said, "Well, I love, I love. I mean, I love reading other writers' work, and mm-hmm. um, usually because you know it stops me having to think about my own. <laughs> <laughs> you know, stops me having to examine how rubbish my own piece of work. Is. <laughs> but you know, it's I, I, I always find it's you learn so much from what other people are doing as well as what you're doing yourself. Yeah. Uh, and I, you know, I think we've had really good feedback from people who've done the course because I think they're always, I mean, the first few times we ran it, because they were doing it to sort of creative writing groups, that's who they were marketing it to rather than to people who were really into romance reading. Um, a lot of them, I think, thought that it would be very simple to write a romance. And mm-hmm. they had that kind of idea in the back of their heads that it's all written to a formula and it's very easy to write and they could just produce it and it would be quite a lark and I think what was really and I quite enjoyed doing was bursting that bubble and saying actually it's really hard and it's no easier to write a romance than it is to write any other kind of genre fiction Mm -hmm. um and it was yeah it was quite interesting as well because we do a lot of reading you know I I use excerpts from lots of different you know, what a broad range romance fiction includes, you know, so many different subgenres and mashups and, you know, it's and different voices within it. Um, it's just so, it's so broad. I think, you know, everything from kind of paranormal to historical to um, all, all, you know, there's just so many different subgenres of romance. So, mm-hmm. mm. So I really like doing it, actually. On the randomly asked question section of your website, one question you answered is, where do you look for writing inspiration? And your answer was in the Guardian's family section. (laughs) Please share with us just an example of inspiration you've gotten for a book from there. Okay, so 
sadly, the, the Guardian's fa when I wrote that on my website it was a few years ago, and they don't really have their family section anymore, which has absolutely gutted me because I it was such a treasure trove of <laughs> interesting stories. I mean, what it they used to do is they used to look at um, they used to kind of have people giving different stories about you know things that had happened within their families and there were just so many interesting conflicts you know and I get I mean I'll give you an example one I wrote a book this was a while ago um called On the First Night of Christmas and the hero in that book um one of the, I read a piece in it about this guy who was writing about when he was a kid um, his mother got into an abusive relationship basically I mean it was a it was a really heartbreaking piece and he said that he couldn't he couldn't he couldn't say the words I love you to anyone because it was such a toxic phrase for him because that's what the abusive man in the relationship his mother was in would tell her you know he would say to her you know I love you I love you every time he you know hitter so I mean it was a really raw piece but I just thought that would be I mean it, I, I remember thinking that was a really because often in romance you know the, the big happy ending is them I mean not this I always felt like them saying I love you isn't the important bit of the story it's them you know finding they love each other mm -hmm. and they don't have to necessarily say it or in those, so many words. And I thought to take that one further, it would be to have a hero who couldn't say those words because they meant something for him that was quite toxic. So I gave him a backstory where that basically that was in the backstory. Um, and so, you know, they had this, I mean, in, in the story, he tells her about this part of his life. But, you know, that's kind of the inspiration. Those kind of stories, it gives you really... Uh, you know authentic insight into how you know and there's so many great I mean interesting stories about all those different kind of things that happen to people and how they react and you know survive it yeah so we're gonna talk some writing questions okay <laughs> we we love these don't we Brie <laughs> <laughs> early bird or night owl what time of day do you feel most productive with writing uh, for me, it's definitely early bird. And basically, if I don't get on with it before about 11 o'clock, hopefully before that, I, then I never write anything that day. I mean, <laughs> and prevaricate like, you know, it's my secret superpower. That's my hidden talent, prevarication. <laughs> <laughs> so I have to kind of sit down and get writing by about 8, eight o'clock, 9 o'clock. Um, and then I will. And then you see what happens is either it goes well or it goes badly. But at least you you're, you're kind of know where you are by the middle of the day. Whereas if you don't even get started until like 12 o'clock. Yeah. And I can't write at night. I mean, I hear stories of people who kind of do 20,000 words in two days because, you know, they're on deadline. And I'm like, yeah, no, that's not me. I'm ringing up my editor and saying, you're going to get this book late. <laughs> <That's not laughs> Well, you mentioned earlier that you feel like you're you're a pantser. Um, so can you talk a little bit about how you figured that out? Did you ever give plotting a try and it just wasn't your thing? Well, I, I'm a pantser with delusions of being a plotter. That's what I'm saying now. Because my 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 editor now asks, I mean, they've they have this thing called the art facts sheet at Harlequin, where you have to they they plan their books so far in advance now that you have to write a potted kind of synopsis for your book 
before you've sometimes before you've even started writing it and that is like agony for a pantser yeah and what happens is, I don't know I have no idea no, but I, I have a basic idea for sort of like an opening scene or maybe an idea for characters sometimes they're characters from a, another story that were secondary characters and now they're going to be in this story and so and I might have an idea for an opening scene and I just waffle myself a synopsis from nothing onto this art fact sheet database Mm -hmm. and then of course when I'm actually writing the story that all just goes out the window and I mean I feel so sorry for my editor because I think she has to then go into this thing and change the (laughs) to what it actually turned out to be and I, I yeah so I kind of try to make out like I'm plotting because I kind of have to mm-hmm. but nothing ever really turns out that way when I write it <laughs> yeah if it's a project you've already been working on do you reread over the previous day's work before beginning yes I do if I kind of need to get back the momentum mm-hmm. so sometimes I'll literally be so into a story that um I'll leave it on a kind of cliffhanger almost so that I know exactly where I'm going when I start again. But sometimes I'm kind of, usually for me, the worst time in a book, I I write the first, usually like up to 20,000 words really fast. And then I kind of hit a massive bump and I start thinking, oh, everything I've written is rubbish and where am I going with this and I don't know what's happening. And, you know, so then I have to kind of, yeah, reread the previous day's work to try and get back into it or convince myself that it's good enough to continue with the forward momentum. (laughs) Are there any necessities you need around you while writing? Um, I I find I write much better in my study at home. I, Mm -hmm. I do try, I mean, I'm going on a writing retreat this Saturday, I'm I'm flying off to Ireland for the first time. First time I'm leaving home in, um, like, apart from my Scottish holiday, um, in 18 months. It's the first time I'm leaving the UK. So mm. I'm going on a writing retreat for a week with um, Abby Green and Amanda Cinelli in Wexford mm. in Ireland. Oh, um, my gosh. The yeah, dream. Yeah, amazing. In a place we've stayed there before, it's this absolutely beautiful place near a massive, gorgeous beach. Um, and, um, I think they've got some story on the website, like Oscar Wilde used to live there, but I don't know. (laughs) I mean, it sounds good. Uh, but we've been on writing treats there before me and Abby and, um, not a lot of writing got done. I have to. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, this time I have to do serious writing because I've got a book that's due in on the 1st of November and Mm. I've just taken a week off to cycle around the highland so you know <laughs> I have to actually get some serious words done so it'll be interesting to see if I can do that because generally I write much better in my study yeah so um, we need a photo of all three of you and the right. caption just needs to say <laughs> the knitting circle, yeah, circle yeah. Instagram feeds, there'll be lots of pictures of me and Abby and her dog Orwell who she's very oh, who goes on her Instagram constantly <laughs> I swear her Instagram is more her dog. (laughs) It's just her dog's Instagram. (laughs) We love Orwell. She's a very, very lovely dog. I'm not a big dog person, I will admit. And that dog is, he's very, very sweet dog. I mean, he is (laughs) like actually the, you know, the king of dogs. I can say that between us because, you know, I can't say that to Abby because she'll think I'm being ironic. (laughs) 
<laughs> but he is actually a very sweet dog because I've got other friends who've got dogs that are really annoying so mm. <laughs> no, he's not an annoying dog yeah he's very sweet I was gonna say I'm not sure that he warrants quite so much Instagram coverage right? <laughs> I'm like oh I wonder what Orwell's up to today let's go check the Instagram <laughs> friends we yeah. have to check in with them I'm not complaining I'm not complaining no, no. <laughs> do you set daily writing goals um I use a thing called pacemaker.press mm-hmm. which I love because I first started using kind of uh word count goals when I did nano write more one year and I actually mm-hmm. managed to write a whole book in a month like it was 50,000 words it turned out that I had to completely rewrite it it was so rubbish after my <laughs> editor saw it but it still felt like like now so I use it's similar to the kind of graphs that you get on nano write mode and you basically just set you know what days you're not going to be writing what when you need to have it finished by and it really is really great because it adapts sometimes I write really a lot in one day and then it'll kind of adapt so that I've got less to write you know the next day or whatever um and it, it's not foolproof because obviously sometimes you you're so kind of focused on getting the words down that you don't really focus on how good they are mm-hmm. um, and then you kind of get to 40,000 words and re- realize that you know 25,000 of them are rubbish but um you know it's still I find it it's a much more efficient way of writing because now I can actually get a book written in kind of six to eight weeks Mm -hmm. um which is for me very good because I I'm quite I mean I used to be quite a slow writer and now I'm trying to get like three to four books a year which Mm -hmm. you know is it's a challenge sometimes, <laughs> depending on the book. Sometimes they kind of are really easy to write, but like 80% of the time they're not. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I think for, I think that that's something that we see only in the romance genre. Mm. You know, if you go to like literary fiction and you have a favorite author there, you know, you may get one book a year. You may, if you not. know. Yeah, I mean, like one of my favorite authors, Susanna Kearsley, who writes, I mean, technically, I think she writes romance, but I discovered her first when I was reading historical fiction. You know, I'm getting a new book this year, but it's been a good two or three years since I've gotten Mm -hmm. the last book, you know, so three Mm -hmm. are just hearing you say, I want to write three books a year is so Mm -hmm. like admirable and incredible. I mean, you know, and I I feel like sometimes, I mean, I try very hard not to compare myself to other writers, but when you compare, when you make the mistake of looking at kind of, um, you know, uh, Megan Crane or Maisie Yates, I mean, they are Mm -hmm. so prolific, but you know, that's just their process. I think you have to kind of say to yourself, everyone has a different speed at which they write and you can kind of try I try and speed it up now a bit more but I know I'm never going to be able to write as fast as them and that's fine you know yeah. it's, it's not the way that's my fine. process works I can't for example write all day I mean I have you know I, I get to my word count goal and sometimes if I'm really really excited about the story or the dialogue is going really well or whatever I'll carry on but usually mm-hmm. I'll just think oh great I can go off and go for a swim or <laughs> go for a walk <laughs> go and watch an episode of you know Bridgerton again or something or Yay! <laughs> yeah, and I don't have to kind of I, I'm terrible I mean it was I once had this conversation with my sister my older sister who's a 
a solicitor, you know, she's a managing partner of a firm. And so mm-hmm. she's constant. I mean, she's like a complete workaholic. And when I said to her, oh, yeah, well, you know, if I, if I finish my word count by, you know, two o'clock, that's it. I just clock off for day. And she just looked at me like, what? well you know I'm thinking all the time about my books so a lot of I need thinking time (laughs) yeah so what program do you use for writing you that's the only one I mean I did try once to use Scrivener my husband writes um crime non-fiction which is Mm -hmm. kind of funny he he suggested I try Scrivener and I'm it just completely killed my process because I Mm. spent my whole time filling out stupid character you know outlines and stuff and not actually writing any story (laughs) for me it's just yeah I just use word and I open a word document and I write chapter and I now when I first started I used to just do scenes according to when they came to me and kind of have it all together in my head the idea how the story was going to go but now I try and write it chronologically just because otherwise you tend to avoid those scenes that you don't really yeah or you you can't link it all together at the end because it doesn't make any sense so yeah you have to kind of yeah so chronologically works better because then I'm kind of forced to look at the overarching story as well as the individual scene I love Mm. that you're writing romance and your husband writes crime novels. seriously like (laughs) that's a romance novel I was just gonna say that exactly (laughs) I know it's so funny he writes I mean his his the last book he had out was a few years ago because he's also a journalist but um he um he wrote this book and it was about a serial killer in like 60s London and I was like could we actually be writing anything more different I don't (laughs) know Funnily enough, he's probably more of a romantic, you know, person than I am, actually. It's quite weird in a way. (laughs) (laughs) You find yourself stumped on a scene. Who do you call? What do you do? Uh, Well, first port of call is always to panic and Mm -hmm. then go through that whole process of why did I ever think this was a good idea for a career? (laughs) And then I'll usually kind of WhatsApp Abby and say, Mm -hmm. help. I'm writing this and it's just turned into an absolute piece of crap and how am I going to get out of this hole? And then she'll, we'll, sometimes we'll speak to each other. She does the same with me and then she'll give me lots of ideas that won't work, but it'll usually spark something that will. (laughs) We write quite different stories. Within Presents, we write quite different stories. Mm -hmm. I like bad boys and she likes kind of um, very kind of dominant alpha heroes. Mm -hmm. And so we write quite different stories, but it does, she really understands obviously about conflict and it's sometimes really good to just have that secondary opinion about something that's going to work. But sometimes that, I mean, basically she'll kind of unstick me enough to carry on writing and then Mm -hmm. really it's all down to my editor um who is brilliant I think you've actually had her on this podcast Bryony Green yes and she's bought me and I've been really lucky like she's been my editor all the way through and we Mm. have a really I think a really I mean she always makes my books so much better um and she kind of knows how I kind of go wrong (laughs) so she'll (laughs) totally sort of you know, say, yeah, you're not really doing that right. And, you know, so it's always, and it's sometimes quite, sometimes, I mean, the book I just handed in, I remember handing it in thinking, I think this book is absolutely the worst thing I've ever written. Mm-hmm. I don't know what's wrong with it, you know. And then she got back to me and said, no, it's it's really almost there. And I was really shocked. But I think sometimes you're too close to it to really see mm-hmm. that it's actually working. Um, 
that doesn't usually happen. It's usually the other way around, whereas I think it's really good and it's not. <laughs> but yeah, so first quarter call is usually Daisy, um, Abby, and then um, it'll be my editor um, once I've written, the, once I've managed to, I mean, occasionally I've actually got to the stage where I've just kind of stalled completely mm-hmm. and I've, I've kind of rung up Bryony in a panic and said look can you just look at what I've got so far and tell me what I'm doing wrong because I can't seem to write any more of this book it's but I've only done that a few times because I think that could get old really quickly mm-hmm. yeah oh shout yeah. out to Miss Bryony yeah <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Brilliant. Let's get into some backlist questions. Which book from your backlist do you remember laughing the most while writing? <laughs> okay. I don't, I mean, I do try and write humor in my books, but I wouldn't say usually when I'm writing, I'm laughing very much. <laughs> oh my God. But, um, but I did have a, I had a scene in a, it was actually a, a women's fiction book called, uh, my first longer book called So Now You're Back. I think I've mentioned it already with mm-hmm. the, the couple who had a baby but um the the scene in the book is and it basically brought back memories I'd I based it on something that actually happened to me and my husband when we were we we went on a kayak trip in and the book is set in the Smoky Mountains but um this happened in the south of France and it was one of those things where you think it will be a great idea when you sign up to do it and it was we were on a cycling holiday in France and we had one day off when we weren't having to cycle anywhere and we said oh let's go on a four-hour kayaking trip I mean what were we thinking and it was down this river and of course we got into the kayak the the river was quite slow moving at the beginning so it was fine but then we got really bored because it's actually really hard work and we were knackered after about 20 minutes and we were having to slog on because they weren't picking us up until like four hours down the river um and then the river just got faster and faster and they had told us don't go past this certain point because then you get to a like a drop off Mm -hmm. and so we were in this situation where and and then somehow the boat turned around and we were going backwards down this quite (laughs) fast river and I just remember we we started laughing because it was so horrible we were like <laughs> and so I basically wrote that scene into the book where they end up going on this kayak trip in the Smoky Mountains and they kind of and they're they've been kind of bickering backwards and forwards and suddenly they're having to do something together and of course it's, mm-hmm. it's all going horribly wrong because <laughs> <laughs> and I kind of but you know it it was sort of like so awful it was actually really funny <laughs> Which book from your backlist was the toughest to write? Well, I to be honest with you, I often have a tough stage with every book I write, like mm-hmm. where I think I'm kind of never going to finish it and it's a nightmare. But probably the hardest one was definitely my second book because my first book that got accepted, I literally spent about two years writing it in bits and pieces. And at that time, mm-hmm. I was still working as a journalist. And um, I... <laughs> And she said, oh, you know, so, you know, we're signing you to a two book contract. And I was so excited. And we want the next book in six months. And I was (laughs) like, what? (laughs) And I had no idea. You know, I'd spent literally years getting this other book, the idea for it and doing little scenes here and there. And suddenly I had to write a book in like six months. months. (laughs) And I'm not a fast writer. And it was just an absolute 
panic. I mean, and I did actually end up doing it, but it was, yeah, it was really hard. But funnily enough, that book got nominated for a Rita, which, I mean, so it must have been okay. But I think it was kind of like, oh, God, yeah. It was, yeah, it was just massive panic all the way while writing it, thinking, Mm. how am I going to do this a second time? Yeah. I mean, I think most authors do that, though. Yeah. Is there a book in your backlist that you feel readers have reached out to you about the most? Um, Well, I'll be perfectly honest. I don't get a lot of reader emails, if I'm (laughs) honest. Um, But I do. I remember I once got really nice feedback on a book that I wrote. I mean, it was basically two books about these two Irish brothers called the Brodies, and um, they, th- their backstory was basically that they'd had a, an abusive father. And I remember, and I, I based that on um, some uh, stuff that was told to me by someone about their experience of something similar. And um, this woman wrote me this really um, lovely email and said, I think you got it exactly right, what it's like mm. to grow up in that kind of it household Um, and I remember thinking god that's really I mean obviously not everyone's experience is the same and it obviously just Mm -hmm. resonated with her um but I was really uh you know I felt really pleased that um I'd got it right for her at least you know Mm -hmm. Um, and I loved those heroes because they were so in a lot of ways they were so damaged but at the same time they were so strong um in terms of their you know their growth during the book and when they fall in love it's very scary for them in a lot of ways but um I I enjoyed those I I liked writing those books and I liked the end result so it was nice to have that kind of response is there a book in your backlist that you feel taught yourself taught you something about yourself as a writer well honestly I think every book I write (laughs) which I then either don't learn or I have to relearn Mm -hmm. Um, but I think probably writing my first single title was interesting because Mm -hmm. for that it was really discovering what a different what a different animal that that is writing a longer book because I think the interesting thing about category is it's basically um, so closely focused on the romantic relationship that you're dealing all the time with the the, the internal conflicts of your characters and how those are developing in each scene. But with a longer book, you have to kind of have a structural narrative mm-hmm. that actually um, interacts with that internal conflict all the way through the book. Whereas with a category romance, you tend to kind of push that out as quickly as you can mm-hmm. so that you're dealing with the internal story. So that was like really interesting learning discovering that I mean having said that it was still really really hard (laughs) and when I wrote my next longer book I had the same struggle again Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah it's I mean every book is a different challenge and because it's a different story and it's different characters is there a book in your backlist that you felt like you really had to do a lot of research to write well I I, to be honest with you I'm one of these people that um is a bit I, I tend to do research after the fact if that sounds I mean it can be Mm -hmm. sometimes you can't do that but um what I tend to like to do is if for example like when I did my story about the woman setting up a farm shop I interviewed someone from a farm shop um and I've 
I when I did my just like in the movies I went and had a long chat with the woman who was managing our local indie cinema here mm-hmm. um, so that's really interesting um, so that's the kind of research I do I like to kind of do it very specific so I'll I'll kind of look at things I don't know and then slot it into the story so because I tend to think that you can get really lost in doing the research yeah. and not actually get around to writing the story and with romance it is about the internal story as much as mm-hmm. the external um but the best thing I, the person I ever had to interview was I when I did a book for Tule called the rodeo cowboy's baby of course I my hero was a rodeo cowboy he was a what was he he was a calf roper I think do I know anything about I've never even been to a rodeo <laughs> so it was like you know I had absolutely no idea and I thought I can't just read all Tule's backlist of rodeo no. stories I mean I did but you know, I can't just do that because that's kind of building on other. But luckily, I've got a, an American brother-in-law and he had a cousin who lives in Colorado, I think. And she is a barrel racer and her husband is a, is a wow. uh, yeah, a, um, a bull rider. And so I managed to get in touch with her on email and just have this really interesting conversation. And it's what's interesting is, of course, you can say to them, if you know, if you can get in touch with someone who can actually give you lived experience, what's really fascinating is when you say, right, so this is the situation for my hero. Um, would What would he do in this situation or how would he react? Or not necessarily to emotional stuff, but just like, like one of the things I asked her was, I was going to have a scene where... Um, it was late at night after the rodeo had finished. And I said, what's that like? You know, what does it smell like? What does it sound mm-hmm. like? And she told me this great story. She said, oh, there's always somebody sitting around the campfire playing guitar and singing some old country song. <laughs> and I thought, God, really, that sounds like such a, you know, like that's the sort of thing a writer would make up. But she said, oh, no, that's like that really happens. So, mm-hmm. yeah, so that was a really interesting story to research. Is there a book in your backlist with a character or scene that still comes across your mind? Um, well, that's, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of scenes that I've kind of written that I either enjoyed writing or kind of resonated really. Um, Cause you do, you pick, you know, you, you don't, you, you use your own experience in certain situations. Mm-hmm. And there's a book I wrote, this was like my fourth book and it's probably still my biggest seller. Um, and it was for presents extra and it, had a what was the title well, pre- pleasure pregnancy and a proposition and at the beginning of the book the whole idea was just based on what would it be like if your couple were not a couple but the heroine was pregnant and didn't know she was pregnant and the hero made her go for an ultrasound because he somehow I had to I mean the plot was quite convoluted but the the Mm -hmm. basic scene in the story was that he persuades her that she is pregnant and or she might be pregnant and um so he takes her to a private clinic in Harley Street and they go and the 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 doctor you know she's in shock because she takes a pregnancy test and she is pregnant and then the the doctor says we can do a sonogram and so they go in to the, um, you know, the ultrasound suite and they see the baby for the first time on the ultrasound. Mm. Of course, she doesn't like this guy. They, you know, they had literally a one night stand and she thought he was a asshole, basically. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so, you know, and so she sees this, you know, baby and it's like, and I just, I that scene resonated with me because I remember when me and my husband, um, we were pregnant for the first time with our first son 
and um, that moment is such a it's a you know for the baby is wanted it's such a magical moment and mm-hmm. I just thought gosh what would that be like if you were in that situation and you either you know didn't want to be with that I mean you know it's just I just thought it would be a really interesting mm-hmm. scene I liked writing that scene is there a book in your backlist that you were nervous about releasing Ooh, um I'll say I mean I think probably my first because uh, when I I wrote for Presents Extra then I wrote for Kiss then Kiss got cancelled and then I kind of spent two years kind of trying to get back into Harlequin (laughs) and kind of proposing stories and, you know, either getting rejected or, you know, it just wasn't the right kind of story. Um, And then I finally managed to get a new contract with them. um, And the first book in that contract was a book called Vows They Can't Escape. And I was quite nervous about that story because I just thought I really want to be writing category again and I really Mm want to write for Harlequin again and I want this to be... A success so I was quite nervous about it yeah but I think the good thing is with category it's like if they accept the story they know it's going to work for their readership so I was nervous about it but they weren't nervous about it which was good is there a a backlist title with side characters you've considered giving their own story to um okay so just about all of my (laughs) (laughs) characters I mean I love I love writing linked books um Mm -hmm. I I often when I'm trying to think like because I you know I've recently signed a six book contract and my um well this last year I did and or earlier this year and we my editor and me went out you know we were talking through what kind of books we would write in these six books we haven't figured out all of them obviously but she was kind of saying oh is there any you know and I and I've always got characters that have appeared in other stories that I think yeah I could definitely give them a story mm-hmm. like a handsome a gorgeous brother who appears you know yeah. or um you know the heroine's best friend or so I'm definitely I've written two first person books that are set on the Cote d'Azur because I we've I've been there a few times with my husband we've got some friends that live out there in this amazing place right near Nice and um so I love that setting it's so presents really mm-hmm. um and I've written a couple of first person books and I've definitely got a couple of characters who appeared in the last book as kind of secondary characters who I'm definitely trying to figure out an idea how I'm going to get them together. I think rather stupidly I made one of the the, the female character a chef. So I'm like, mm, how can I make her? <laughs> how can I do <laughs> make her like, yeah, is he going to be his personal chef or something? I mean, I don't know, but yeah. <laughs> and he's a, he's a racing car owner, but I kind of mm. did one of those and I, well, I actually don't know enough about I had to have a long chat with Maya Blake because she's really into Formula One and I don't really know enough about it and afterwards I said to my editor I'm never doing another racing car book because I just don't know enough about it. yeah <laughs> so I'm gonna have to think of a way that he's not a racing car owner anymore but yeah mm. let's get into some round out questions what is one book you wish you could read again for the first time oh Gosh. Um, <laughs> I, well, <laughs> I, funnily enough, I am currently rereading the whole of um, the Ravenals series, mm, yes. Pass, which I love. I, I tell you the book I absolutely loved the first time I read it, and I haven't been able to read it again because I'm a very slow reader and it's a very long book, um, the Outlander series <laughs> of books, which I love. 
but I just cannot, you know, like they're 800 words pages each. And I'm like, <laughs> I think it would take me the rest of my life if I tried to read them all. I've, I've read the first book four times. Yeah. Sarah, put her on game. It sounds like she needs to know yeah. the way to read Outlander. Tell Do you, her no, no, no. Legitimately, if you are an audiobook listener, oh. get Outlander on audio. It is just the icing and the cherry on top of the cake. Oh, that's a great idea. Because, you know, I don't listen to audio books, but somebody else said that to me. And I thought, God, you know, actually, that's a brilliant idea. Davina Porter is the narrator of all the um, all the Outlander books. And I have re-listened to the entire series on audio. And listening to her with the accents, I mean, it's just amazing. Absolutely oh, I must amazing. try that. I must mm-hmm. try that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I mean, that, yeah, that's a great That idea. series. I'm so excited about the new book. I can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me too. And it's, it's, she's done it now, hasn't she? Finally. I mean, I've been it's, watching. It's been released. The audiobook comes out at the end of November, I think. Oh. Yeah. Released. I didn't know it would come out. Yep. It's not yep. Go Tell before. the Bees That I Am Gone, I think is what it's called. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's Go check uh, it out. Yeah. Is this all in the same world? I mean, I feel like yes. this is such an old series. Is is it yes. an old series? <laughs> I mean, Outlander, I read Outlander the first time when it was originally published as Cross Stitch was the original title of it. Yeah. And I mean, that's what, 20, God, how many years ago? It's like, I mean, I only came to it about five years ago. That was Mm -hmm. Abby Green's fault again. She told me about it. She said, you must read it. So I read that first book and then I think, God, I've just got to read all of them, you know. And I think at that time, yeah, there was still the, the last book that's just come out. I mean, it's such a huge... I'm kind of, you feel like a lot of people say, oh, they reread them all because it's hard to remember who all the characters are. Exactly. There are many of them now, yeah. Mm-hmm. But it jumps time and it jumps characters and it's mm-hmm. it's it's a commitment. Let's put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> so let Davina Porter help you with the commitment. That's right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that sounds like a great idea. <laughs> um, tell us about one of your under-the-bed stories, something you've written that will never see the light of day. Well, I think my awful bodice ripper when I was... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> That's it. That's it. I mean, I've got loads of stuff that... I mean, I had one that I wrote several years after that original one where um, the heroine, the opening of the book, she basically has an epileptic fit. I mean, I mean, yeah. It's, you know, I don't know what I was thinking with that one either. <laughs> <laughs> What's a romance that you've read within the past few years that reminded you of why you love the genre? Oh, so many. I mean, uh, there's so many great books out there, isn't there? I mean, I love, I'm a big fan of uh, Kate Meader's books. And mm-hmm. she writes really, really good kind of category, really, I guess, because they're, they're short books, but they're not necessarily in an imprint. Um she writes all these kind of hockey stories, ice hockey stories. I mean, I know nothing about ice hockey. I'm not <laughs> remotely interested in it. But the characters are just great, and her banter is fantastic. I've actually recently read a book that Abby put me onto by, and I can't remember the name of the author. It was called something like One Night Only. And it's it's she's an Irish author, and that was just brilliant as well. The banter was fantastic. And the characters were really felt really kind of authentic and contemporary and um yeah so I love that um I yeah I mean I I find like often I'll read stuff and think wow I wish I could write like that (laughs) (laughs) yeah 
Who was your teenage celebrity crush? Okay, so this is going to sound a bit weird, but um, <laughs> I had a massive crush when I was like 14 on James Dean. And at the time, he was well dead. <laughs> I mean, I I watched East of Eden, his first film on um, telly one day, mm-hmm. and I just fell in love with him. I thought, God, he's so gorgeous. And- he is. Yeah. I feel like I have a crush on James Dean, and he's been dead for way before I was born. <laughs> yeah, way before I was born. And then I found out he was dead, you know, and I was like, Jesus, the same day. It was like teenage <laughs> angst. It was like, oh. But... Um, so he was kind of my celebrity because, like, at the time, everyone was kind of into, you know, people that I wasn't really that keen on. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I, lo- I loved I loved him. And, and right. funny enough, my, my friend Katri, who I go on road trips with, she that's how we first bonded was our love of James Dean. I mean, <laughs> he was this, this larger-than-life presence that mm-hmm. literally was just gone way too soon like yes, well, I've actually I mean this is how sad my celebrity crush is I've actually been to the place where he died really that's a road place yeah I mean she's actually been to Fairmont in Indiana I've never got there was but, born, yeah yeah mm-hmm. she's been to where he was born when she was kind of hitchhiking around the states um so yeah I, I haven't been able to bring myself to finish it just because I've I'm just like saving the right time, but there's this show that is about this doctor that does autopsies on celebrities that have passed. Oh. And he's just like how it, cause James Dean was a very knowledgeable racer. Like he knew what he was doing. And he's like, how does this guy who knows what he's doing behind the wheel die in a car accident like that? And like the part that I got to in the show, he was like, really, he could not see. <laughs> Like he, had, like, he had to wear glasses, and that's why yeah. being an actor, like, he would have to, like, memorize his lines and stuff because then he'd get out there and he couldn't have his glasses on because that's not attractive, you know, in old Hollywood <laughs> days. And it was just like, wow, like, I, the part of the show that I've got, I'm in, I'm like, did his glasses fall off? Like, what happened? But yeah, yeah. Well, yeah like, I, I might have seen that. I saw a show about, they basically analyzed the skid marks and, oh, this is so macabre. But, <laughs> but um, they, they basically said that because he was driving this really deadly car far too mm-hmm. fast, um, the guy who, basically came out of the side road which he he hit didn't couldn't see him because it was silver and it was very low and he was and it was on a road where there would have been kind of heat shimmer yeah just wouldn't have seen I mean yeah it just sounds so awful it's Mm. yeah still a gorgeous gorgeous present yeah I mean I I just love his first two films especially Giant is a bit kind of like there's far too much of rock hudson and elizabeth taylor in that film to my mind <laughs> but yeah um name one film which may be hard because we know you like movies <laughs> so name one film you'll never stop watching okay so i i mean i have like obviously like james bean's movies and i love on the waterfront which is an old film starring um, marlon brando when he was young um i love all that kind of method acting stuff that's really my mm-hmm thing but I think a film that I watch nearly every year and it's because I watch it with Abby Green and we have like a a sort of um she, she I, did she ever work with 
I don't know if she worked with him, but she's kind of very keen on Daniel Day-Lewis. And I, this is the only film I like him in, is uh, Last Night, Last of the Mohicans. Mm -hmm. I feel so like when we asked her this question, Sarah, that was her answer. <laughs> I think so, yeah. Yeah. So that's a film that I never stop watching because she always wants to keep, but Watch I do it, yeah. really like re-watching it. There's a, there's a scene in that film where, um, you know, the, the bit under the waterfall where um, he's, uh, have you seen the film? Because mm -hmm. there's yeah. that bit where he kind of says, no matter what happens, you know, I'll, I'll come back for you. You just stay alive. And it is kind of brilliant because she's, she's the hero of that movie, not mm -hmm. him. I think, because she's the one that, you know, is going to have to survive. Yeah. What is one hill you will wholeheartedly die on? Ooh, don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't quite sure what this meant. Like, you mean like... Like, um, Outlander is definitely a romance. Because oh, a lot I of people argue it's like a historical like, fiction. Yeah, okay. Absolutely that hill, but also yep. the other one that I will die on is Die Hard is not a Christmas movie. Yes, it Interesting. is. I don't think it's a Christmas movie. And I've had this argument with so many people who think they're being kind of cool and trendy by saying, oh, but it is because it's set at Christmas. and But it's just not a Christmas movie. It's got no Christmas <laughs> real iconography in it. You know, I just don't see that it's about Christmas at all. It's about him being you know i mean it's not really one of my favorite films either which is <laughs> <laughs> but, you know i god i hate having that argument with people well we, every year we watch die hard as a christmas movie um because i've been saying that since i was a kid but okay. the other one which maybe isn't considered christmas but it again it takes place at christmas is it's this is an older one the ref with um oh god the stand-up comedian dennis leary and kevin spacey Oh, I've never He's, seen that. Oh, it's hilarious. And the the mother is played by the woman who was the mother in um, Mary Poppins, but much oh, older now. Glenn and yeah, Glenn. yeah, Dennis Leary kind of breaks into this house, and it's that he holds them hostage. Yeah, I that film. <laughs> it's hilarious, hilarious. <laughs> I mean, you know, there are films that I would consider to be Christmas films that maybe don't sort of seem like Christmas movies, and I'm trying sure. to think of one now, and I can't think of one. But that film just no. I mean, when somebody told me it was set at Christmas, I was really surprised. It was? <laughs> yeah, I was like, really? I had a set at Christmas? Oh, yeah, maybe. You know. I remember the first time someone, like, there was a list of Christmas movies, and I saw Sleepless in Seattle on it, and that's one of my mm. favorites. And I was like, technically, I guess it could be, because it does start at Christmas, but it's like <laughs> Valentine's Day at the end of the movie. <laughs> I know. See, that I wouldn't consider to be a Christmas movie either. Mm -hmm. Yep. Nope. I think, yeah, there's a certain type of movie that I consider to be a Christmas movie and it's, Die Hard yeah. isn't one of them. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. That's fair. We need the snow. We need the Christmassy stuff, okay? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What is one of your favorite romance tropes to read? Ooh. Um, ooh, that's a good one. I mean, I gosh, I'm not even sure. There's so many that I really... I mean, I do like accidental pregnancy just because it's such a it's such a instant conflict. Yep, it produces. You know, it's that whole concept of parenthood when you're not even in a relationship is just so. And there are so many different ways to handle it. Yeah. Um, which mm -hmm. you know, it's 
and are they necessarily, you know, it, it's interesting because then like if they become a couple, then it's not just about how they are as a couple, but also how they're going to be as parents, which mm-hmm. is, right. you know, and yeah. how they're going to negotiate that. So you're kind of, um, you know, it, it, it's quite hard to handle well in the short book. So that's, I always like that trope. And I also like, I like, um, uh, I, I mean, I love enemies to lovers. That's mm. one of my favourites, really. I think that's probably my favourite, actually, because I just think, I mean, it's it's that idea that they're really at loggerheads. And I know it's such a it's such a popular one, really, isn't it? It's there's so mm-hmm. many, so many versions of it, but I do love that whole kind of how they come to appreciate each other by the end, each <laughs> other at the start. Well, what I think is interesting about like accidental pregnancy, this is something Sarah and I talk about all the time is like when we're reading and we know it is a book with sex on the page, it's interesting Mm -hmm. to see how the sex on the page changes the relationship. Like, you know, where does it go from here? Where if there's an accidental pregnancy and say there's not even sex on the page in the book, it's just the sex has already happened. She's pregnant. Mm -hmm. That's where we meet Mm -hmm. them in the beginning. There's already this established relationship yeah. mm-hmm. there you know because it's it's led to this and then you can get into the conflicts that kind of come along with accidental with the pregnancy that maybe the yeah. character the hero mm-hmm. didn't know about or what have you so. yeah I mean I've had kind of accidental pregnancies come kind of at the near the end of the book and readers get really pissed off if it's then um you know uh, titled like that's the pregnancy but, is part of the conference. Yeah. Really, it's not if it's halfway through the book. Mm-hmm. Um, so I love my my two favorite books are where the first scene is the heroine telling the hero, or in the case of that pleasure pregnancy in a proposition, the hero telling the heroine. Yeah. <laughs> <that she's pregnant. laughs> um, and so I love that so that you've instantly, yeah, like you say, they've had a sexual encounter already. So the next step is, yeah, what happens with that relationship? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, all sorts of things happen after somebody gets pregnant in terms of, mm-hmm. um, you know, intimacy. <laughs> so, yeah, so it's interesting. It's, yeah, I, I just... Yeah, I do like that. But I think Enemies to Love is probably my favourite because that's such Mm -hmm. a, it's an all-encompassing trope. I mean, you usually have to do it with other tropes as well, obviously, because it's too obvious. But but I do like that. Can you share with us what is coming up from you next? Yes. At the moment, I well, I've just finished a book and I'm the next book I'm doing, well, the book I'm currently writing, which is due on November the 1st. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) is a it's they're doing a whole series i think it's they're going to come out next june or something of twisted fairy tales and so my editor asked me if i'd like to do one and i said yeah i'd love to do one um based on little red riding hood yes that is my favorite (laughs) so much fun getting the hero into granny's old bathroom (laughs) 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 and yeah so that's I mean, I, I'm I'm struggling with it a little bit at the moment because I'm trying to figure out how. I mean, I think the basic twist in the story is that he's a wolf, but he's. I mean, and he is actually called Jack Wolf, rather cleverly. Nice. See what I did there? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm excited about this series. <laughs> but he. Um, but I think the point is that he's. He's. Um, you know, he he's very cynical, but he actually desperately needs 
love. And the heroine is going to have to figure that out somehow, but I'm not sure how yet. But Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so she's kind of Little Red, but she's at the same time, she's pretty, um, she's pretty tough. She's, um, she's a tough, she's going to be a really tough heroine. So she's going to, she's going to match the wolf for... (laughs) Yeah, that's that is I love Cinderella retellings, which we see a lot in romance. And I think with presents, we definitely see. But Little Red Riding Hood, I just think is my favorite to see retold because it started out like its early beginnings were just I think such like a cautionary tale. So to see modern day writers like giving Red her power back and making her, you know, more smarter and stuff like that, it's just it's so nice to see. So I'm excited for that. Yeah. Well, good. Well, I mean, I think I remember uh, my story is inspired by something that Roald Dahl once said when he said, if I was writing that fairy story, I would have little she would red. She would have got a gun. Yeah, she would have <laughs> got a pistol out of her knickers and shot him. So I <laughs> thought, yeah, that's going to be my kind of go to, although she won't shoot him, obviously. But, uh, <laughs> she'll want to. <laughs> and lastly, where can everyone find you online? Um, my website is uh, Heidi-Rice.com and from there I have like a blog which I hardly ever update now and I'm on Instagram as Heidi Rom Rice and on Twitter and uh, do I do anything else? No, I don't think so. Um, oh, on Facebook. I have an author page on Facebook which once again I'm a bit useless at updating. my instagram page is where i am most of the time i'd say i mean Mm -hmm. there's loads of great pictures on there of cycling in in the highlands (laughs) (laughs) well thank you so much for hanging out with us today this has been so incredible and so insightful and so fun and we've just really been looking forward to it so thank you well thanks so much for asking such interesting questions um and Mm -hmm. i hope i didn't waffle too much you did fabulous I really hope everyone enjoys it and I feel like they will. So Mm -hmm. listeners, make sure you check the show notes. We will have links to all the places where you can find and keep up with Heidi, as well as Mm -hmm. all the places where you can find her books. Keep an eye out for what is coming up next. We are just so excited and totally rooting for everything that you do. Um, (laughs) And Sarah and I will chat with you in our next episode, everybody. Have a lovely day. Mm -hmm.